my degenerate angels, TGI motherfucking F, and welcome back to another episode of Tales of Taboo and another day of our special Rush Week, where we're diving deep into the corrupted and complicated world of sororities my experience with them, public figures' experiences with them, and now, finally, what the show is known for, your experiences with them. So for anybody who's new to the show, welcome to the original double-decker bus tour ride of hell. My name is Allie Weiss. I'm a Z-list performer and writer in downtown New York City, and I'm obsessed with all people, topics, and ideas that fall outside the lines of what society considers acceptable. That might make the average sorority girl clutch her pearls, if you will. Some people like to call me a shock jock, but I'm just curious about humanity. I'm also obsessed with the nature of intimacy in our digital age and pushing the boundaries of what secrets people are willing to share behind the protection of an iPhone or a computer screen. So like this one, that's what most of the Tales of Taboo episodes are a collection of juicy, hilarious, heartbreaking, anonymous stories about my listeners' shared taboo experiences, both written and recorded. We're like the voice, but we never turn our chairs around to see who's singing because that ruins the fun. Basically, I've created a podcast and a platform that's like half church confessions booth and half daytime TV show on a subpar cable network. Previously, I did an hour-long solo episode about my own experience as the sole New Yorker in a top, very conservative, very blonde sorority on my Southern California campus, as well as an episode of interviews with TikTok stars Alyssa Schoner, Becca Moore, and Eli Rallo, all of whom have publicly spoken out about Greek life. And today, our contributors are from different size schools all over the nation, sororities of various tiers and quote-unquote rankings, different nationalities, and socioeconomic backgrounds. We'll hear about hazing, rigged recruitment tactics, classism, you name it, the stereotypes are true. So strap into your sofa or your desk chair, or the driver's seat in the Chick-fil-A drive through line, and let's get ready to rush, baby. Off we go. Submission number one. And excitingly, this came from one of my former sisters. <clears throat> I was an alpha fee. I think there was a divide between 2013-14 and then 2016-17, a bit of a rebrand happened to be less uptight and more girl next door. Delta Gamma became less relevant as I got older. Gamma Phi and Theta became top competitors later on because they got the smart, down-to-earth, cool girls, whereas Afi and DG were still attracting party girls with little to no brain cells. I wasn't planning on rushing until I got to school and realized that if I didn't, I wouldn't fit in with the girls I was seeing at parties. I immediately became confused when packs of older girls were being really nice to me and remembering my name because that was the literal opposite of what high school was like. I wanted to be an alpha fee because it was an emblem of being hot and cool. I felt like if I was sorted into alpha fee, then objectively people would find me cool before even getting to know me. 
Coming from a small town, I had never curled my hair before, let alone wear heels in a dress. So being around all these 18-year-old girls who looked like models during Rush was making me feel insecure in a way I never had before. But then I felt validated, popular, pretty, and elite when the top house wanted me. It was definitely a mindfuck looking back. I was hooking up with a guy before Rush, and when I got into AFI, he seemed weirdly proud and then started to hang out with me in public more. Can I just say, you getting dropped is legendary in the chapter. You were an icon. The moment. The drama was highly entertaining from an outsider's view, and I think you never should have been dropped. Oh, thanks, babe. I was vice president of recruitment and have all the tea. Bump groups are formed by ranking every single member of the chapter one through five on polished presentation and one through five on personality. When I was VPR, it was my mission to diversify the gene pool of AFI and get the average GPA above a fucking 2.9. So the presentation was less about physical attractiveness and more about if they could speak without saying like every two seconds and knew not to wear a purple thong with white pants. So say you get a four in looks and a four in personality, you're an eight. Then we put all the tens together, all the sixes together, all the fours together, etc. From there, we would try and mix up the diversity, quote unquote, of the group with different majors, hair colors. By my year, we actually had a few people of color, and they were usually included in star bump groups of nines and tens. The shitty bump groups were basically playing pretend recruitment, talking to girls we knew we didn't want. It was sometimes a little too obvious how the bump groups worked, and the bottom-tier girls would throw a fit. My year, we actually had some of the bump groups be optional and told them not to show up if they didn't want to. But here's the sweet spot. The sixes and sevens. You know, the girls you knew were fucking cool, but maybe didn't look the perfect AFI part. I would send them in to talk to the star potential new members that were polarizing, i.e. were all about partying, maybe looked an AFI but was an idiot, etc. If the potential new member treated the less attractive girls dismissively, then I would know they were shallow and we would drop them. On the other hand, if they could level with the nerds and engage in great conversation, I knew they were cooler than they came off and were worth giving another day to interview. I'm also very proud that AFI was the first chapter on campus to accept a trans woman. But I will say, she was very cis-passing, and I'm curious what happened in the back room that year. I bet it was pretty polarizing. I'm also curious how they would respond to a less cis-passing trans woman. We had a PowerPoint for the members during Rush to explain what type of girl deserved a 10 and which deserved a 1. Snooki was the example for a one, lol, because she partied too hard and was seemingly unintelligent. Beyonce was a 10 because she was poised, talented, and generally well-liked in the media. A five was Kristen Stewart because she was cool but awkward and didn't bring much to the table. Sorting potential new members is a two-step process. First, when they sign up for Rush, we look at their socials, their grades, their resume, and give them a one to 10 as a pre-score. That's how we match them with a bump group. Girls who look good on paper get matched with the coolest girls in the sorority. As for the girls who had reputations coming in, my strategy was to think, will she help us recruit more girls down the line? Will she uphold the reputation of being the most talked about girls on campus? Because any publicity is good publicity, right? 
I personally looked at recruitment like sales. And if this girl could help us be a better salesperson down the line, then sure, let's have her stick around a few days and see how the girls score her. Looking back, the way we matched people for Pref Morning was emotional manipulation. For example, we'd match two girls if they shared the same family trauma or both got bullied in high school. That way, when a girl is prefing someone, they have a better chance of relating to them and making them feel a very strong emotion. It was like a badge of honor if you could get your pref to cry. I personally was a terrible prefer because I couldn't take myself that seriously. There was definitely tension between me and my advisors the year I ran recruitment. I wanted to change the way we did things, like accepting more women of color, giving girls who might not seem AFI material a second chance to warm up to us, not ranking girls on looks, being open to a broader range of gender expression. But they didn't get that being a bottle blonde wasn't cool anymore. I don't think Greek life attracts folks who are different. When the pool to choose from is all white, it's hard not to end up with an all white sorority. I think it's the job of Panhellenic and the school as a whole to actively engage with different types of people if they want to continue Greek life. When I look back, I get sad thinking about all the things I didn't do because I was in a sorority. I was hardly on set for film school. I partied with the same people every weekend. I didn't have many hobbies outside of Srat life, and I definitely realized a lot of insecurities I had. Being in a sorority feels chuggy now, and I'm definitely not flaunting my letters or wanting to push anyone else into one. But did it give me a bit of a social hall pass in college, resulting in always having something to do? Yes. Was it fun? Yes. Did it create some drama and add a bit of spice to my life? Yes. Submission number two. I was a Delta Gamma at USC. I joined as a freshman and dropped out my junior year. USC has four top houses, and of those, Delta Gamma and Kappa are considered the top two. They were rivals for that reason and always competing for the same girls. DG's reputation was fun, more down-to-earth girls who liked to party, but were still hot, mostly blonde, rich, well-dressed, and all the other prerequisites. Kappas were more manicured, slightly more conservative and prudish, and high-maintenance flashier with their money. It's also worth noting that every house, even Delta Gamma, had a subset of girls who were not partiers. Some of these girls were legacies, meaning their mom or sister had been in the house, or they just took the sisterhood very seriously. So there was always this tension between the girls in the house who would go to frat parties in skimpy outfits and do drugs and sleep around, and the girls who were part of honor board trying to enforce a code of conduct and leading Bible study every Sunday. I didn't know anything about sororities or Greek life, zero, when I arrived at USC as a freshman from New Jersey. No one at my public high school had gotten into USC for years, and even though I'd done a summer program there, I went in blindly. My freshman year roommate and I got along immediately and became really fast friends. She had grown up in LA and was well-connected. So before Rush, she arranged for me and her to go over to this woman's house so she could essentially brief us on what to expect. She told us to bring outfit options and she'd style us for each day. So we both got a crash course and tons of insider expert info on what to do, what to wear, what it meant if they took us to certain parts of the house during rush, etc. Despite that, though, I found the rush process to be extremely emotionally and physically draining. Unlike the frats, you don't just rush the houses or house you're interested in joining. 
you have to visit every single house at least once. And then it's a process of elimination where you rank your top choices and they rank you. And this happens over the course of many consecutive days. It's an endless blur of redundant three-minute conversations that feel overly forced, where you're constantly being sized up and internally asking yourself if you're doing something wrong. I'm very introverted, so having girls fake fawning over me and being like, oh my god, I love your shoes and your hair is amazing made me uncomfortable. In the end, I whittled it down to DG as a first choice and PiFi as a second because the girls I met there seemed the realest. If you make it to prep night, which is the last day of recruitment before bid night, that usually means a house really wants you and you can expect a bid. The tables really turn on that day and it gets weirdly emotional because girls in the house are like, I'll be heartbroken if you don't join this house. So if a sorority drops you after prep night, it's not only a complete surprise and huge disappointment for you, it's a bad look for them because they just begged you to join the night before. I ended up getting a bid from DG, but they dropped my roommate, so she got bumped to PiFi. This came as a total surprise to both of us, and when I showed up to DG on bid night, a few girls took me aside and personally apologized, saying they knew we wanted to be in the same house and that there had been a heated, hours-long debate over my roommate. Ultimately, there were one or two girls in the house who knew her from growing up in LA and had negative feelings towards her and had her blacklisted, even though a vast majority felt otherwise. It was fucked up and put a bad taste in my mouth from the very beginning. There was no traumatizing physical hazing, but there were a lot of over-the-top bonding exercises meant to bring us all closer together. In one scenario, we had to sit in the living room while our pledge mom read letters from each of our parents out loud. They'd reached out to our parents secretly, and we had no idea these letters were coming. A lot of them were highly personal or just straight embarrassing. It was like a weird competition to prove whose parents loved them the most. In another scenario, we all went to a girl's house in Newport for a retreat and had to sit in the pitch black dark for hours and were encouraged to share our deepest secrets and struggles. The idea was that darkness lends anonymity or makes it easier to speak out. Girls talked about eating disorders, being molested and sexually assaulted, and how it had affected their relationship with men and sex. One girl told a detailed story of how her dad was murdered. Another talked about her dad having an affair with someone who turned into a stalker and harassed their family. The only black girl in our pledge class talked about how she'd always felt ostracized because of the color of her skin, how she'd had doubts that she'd ever make it into DG, how hard it was to look around and not see anyone who looked like her, and that she was surprised and overwhelmed by the fact that she'd been accepted. Rush on the other side is a boot camp. You have to go to school a week early and you're essentially locked in the house the entire time and all you eat is salad. When I watched that TV show Cheer on Netflix, it reminded me so much of Rush. Your face hurts from fake smiling after the first day and everyone loses their voices from screaming. I remember the Rush chairs tried to teach us how to scream in such a way that we wouldn't lose our voices. Everyone in my pledge class had to scream one by one in front of everyone, and if you weren't loud enough, they'd make you keep doing it until they were happy. A lot of people broke down crying that day. And the entire thing is solely based on looks. It's organized so that the prettiest girls are always in the front and everyone else essentially fills in behind them. It's orchestrated down to the detail. We knew everything about every girl that walked in the door because we'd all sit in a room and look at their photos every night and memorize things about the girls. 
This was when we had the opportunity to give our opinions. So if you saw someone you knew from high school that you didn't like, let's say, you could raise your hand and object to them. Any negative comment had to be sandwiched in between two positive ones. So people would say things like, she's cute, but I went to high school with her and she's not a nice person, but she's cute. But I was in it for the social events and skipped sisterhood events whenever I could, which meant I racked up thousands of dollars in fines. The dues for even being in a sorority at USC are already high. At one point, I became an honor board target. I remember on Valentine's Day, I posted a photo on another sister's wall. It was one of those heart-shaped chocolate boxes, but instead of chocolates, there were weed nuggets. She smoked a lot, and it was supposed to be funny. A few hours later, I got an inbox from the head of honor board saying it went against our code of conduct or some shit. I'm not sure why I became a target, but that's eventually what led me to drop out. I didn't want to follow any of their rules. Submission number three. I was an Alpha Sigma Alpha at the University of Central Missouri. ASA was considered, at least at the time of my recruitment, one of the top houses. We were known for recruiting smart, athletic party girls. Nicknames for us included Alphas, Alphaholics, Alpha Sigs, Allie's note, that's spelled (laughs) C-I-G-S. The women in my chapter would kill me for saying this, but I really don't care. Our competing house was Sigma Sigma Sigma. No one wanted to admit that Sigma was our rival, but it was blatantly obvious, and a lot of women in my chapter often displayed jealous behavior. Sigma was known for being blonde, fake, and slutty. Recruitment was extremely intimidating. I had never been considered cool or attractive before college. I was a nationally placed swimmer, and most of my time was spent practicing with my club swim team, so naturally all of the friends I had came from that environment. I couldn't party in high school if I wanted to. I simply did not have time. So when I quit swimming and went through recruitment, I was floored. Suddenly, the conversation turned from the best speed suit or goggles to wear during a distance event to where I got my shoes from and what my dad did for a living. I had female friends on my swim team and in school, but sitting in a room full of women like that as an 18-year-old tomboy was terrifying. I was a legacy recruit for my house, but I got along well with the first chapter member that I met and saw that as a sign that it was meant to be. That said, I'm sure being a legacy had a huge hand in getting me into ASA. Being a part of a desirable group was something I hadn't felt before. People were more interested in who I was because of my letters. Our sorority was the only one that was permitted to host off-campus formals, so men would literally approach alphas on campus to ask if they could come with. Absolutely wild. I literally had a roster of men to invite my first semester. I actually even invited one guy and uninvited him after I decided I liked another one better. I guess some things that happened could be considered hazing. We were, quote, enthusiastically encouraged to drink an absolute fuck ton of alcohol at our bid party and were harassed by older members to dance on elevated surfaces whenever the song Like a Prayer by Madonna came on. Another time we were forced to wear silly outfits. I was given a pink shirt, tiny shorts, a tiara, and a mustache, and again, enthusiastically encouraged to drink an exorbitant amount of booze before being shoved into a dark basement and forced to chant the creed over and over again. Women in my pledge class were crying. 
We also had a candle pass where we sat as a pledge class and passed around a candle as we all revealed some of the worst parts about ourselves, some of the worst things that had happened to us in the past, and to, quote, meet each other where we are. This was a four-hour process for just 30 women and was absolutely emotionally exhausting. Not to mention some of these sisters would take information given during Candle Pass and hold it against other members in a vindictive way. After initiation, we would tell ghost stories about an older sister that passed in the 70s near the quarry, which she fell into and drowned. Then we would go back to our housing complex and play with a Ouija board in order to contact her. This seriously freaked out some of the members that were more inclined towards Christianity. Social events were often massive shit shows, and our chapter was frequently on social probation via nationals. Formals often included a large list of damages that we were charged for and then had to explain to our parents why we were being charged 50 plus dollars. Women punching each other, things being tossed off a roof, vomit down staircases, vehicle theft, etc., I won an award for being the most volatile date at a frat formal because a member asked me to punch him in the face and he lost a tooth. At that same formal, I made friends with the owner of the bar next to our lake house and he allowed a cross-faded 20-year-old me to drive his supercharged ATV through the Ozarks at three in the morning. Holy shit. Oh, and as previously mentioned about the Madonna reference, it was expected that you would be on an elevated surface whenever this song played. This was notoriously annoying to everyone else because anytime it was played anywhere, you could catch every single alpha in the place scrambling to get on something tall. The way that women acted in my chapter caused me to want to drop every semester, but I was emotionally manipulated into staying. I really wish I could have dropped after my first year. I was painted to be a very false version of myself, sent to standards for things that weren't true or things people heard about me through other people in other corners of Greek life. The way my friend was treated when she came out as gay was despicable, as was the way women treated each other in terms of their relationship with sex. Our president at one point made an announcement at a meeting stating that we needed to close our legs based on accusations that had been made about women in our chapter on Yik Yak. I know a lot of women had a positive experience in my sorority, but I often refer to my time there as being in a cult, because it was. Everyone was willing to sweep everything under the rug in order to maintain the face of ASA, despite how entirely toxic the experience was. Alpha Delta Pi at South Carolina was definitely the bring home to your mom sorority. We were bred to be the perfect wife type, and... That ended up working to an advantage of us becoming really well-rounded women. Um, we had the highest GPA every semester. We volunteered often. And there was just this really obvious undertone, not so undertone, of religion. Uh, we were often referenced as the Bible beaters. And I think from afar, we would be recognized as like boring Barbies. We were almost all exclusively blonde, came from privileged backgrounds. You loved Jesus and your dad loved Fox News and you had a 4.0, but you were low-key just trying to find a husband who was in a good fraternity as well. And you can start your life together and he can take over his father's Southeastern construction business 
and you live in a cute little house that you bought at 27 approximately, and now you have two children. I would consider that I was in a top house. South Carolina had so many different houses and therefore had like three distinct tiers that the top tier was Kappa Delta, Alpha Delta Pi, Zeta Tau Alpha, and Delta 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 or Tridel. Rush itself was a week-long event with thousands participating and many dropped after the first few days. And at South Carolina, I remember thinking, and I I have to admit, I still feel like this. You have to be Greek to have a social life. And in, in the social life sense of what I really wanted out of it, I wanted things lined up for me and that I was going to, to have friends and like a smaller community because the school was 40,000 people from, for both undergraduate and graduate. And I felt like I needed to make a smaller community and why not make a smaller community of people who all just look exactly like me and act exactly like me. Rush was just incredibly stressful as a Rushie, uh, but I had been mentally prepared since I was 15 or 16. I always had older girls from home tell me exactly what to do, what to expect on each day, what to say, what to wear, what houses to like, what houses not to like. And I remember pulling together like all of my allowances to buy as many Lily Pulitzer or dresses and pairs of Jack Rogers sandals as I could, because I knew, and I've been told that that was a specific uniform that said, I know what I'm getting into. I know what I'm doing. Um, and on top of that, I had like three to four letters of recommendations I'd submitted prior to Rush, not because I was proactive, but if you wanted to be in top tier sorority, more often than not, you had to have recs. And we would rank people as I was older in the sorority and we would go through every single person's profile. We, it was just, a, it was simply a point system. If you were a legacy, we had to keep you around. If you had recommendations, each of those were points. Um, and then just face value of how attractive we found someone. And, and being a little bit more of a, I would say, extracurricular party girl in, in that stage made me feel like an outsider. It leads into the greater identity issue that I always had about not feeling a part of the group. What I technically had a, a great time in, public relations chair t-shirt chair, made all the merch, attempted to be social chair, like did, did the damn thing and did it well, but always struggled and knew that I really didn't ever belong because I was trying to be someone that I wasn't back to rush. I mean, it was an absolute show. I was pretending to be perfect as possible. They were pretending to be as perfect as possible. And I was walking into a what looked like $20 million mansion with 300 of the prettiest girls I've ever seen. Like I was willing to do anything to make that a reality. You know, small talk, talk about things I didn't care about. I didn't even know who I was at that point. You know, you're 18, you're so impressionable. These girls, even though, you know, hindsight, they're only like what, like 19 to 21, but I really looked up to them and would have done anything to fit in. And, uh, especially just cause I had been planning on it and have really had, uh, that set for me since I was in high school of just, just the assumption that I would do that. Oh, are you going to go to South Carolina? Or are you going to go to Clemson? Oh, okay. Or are you, wh- which sorority are you going to, I knew the sororities and their reputations, you know, before I was 17 and I already, it already had been made up in my mind, similar to like, I always knew I was going to go to college. Well, I always knew that I was going to jo- join a sorority in college. 
and in regards to like the any creepy nature uh, things that happened in the process i mean really i think it was just rooted in the sorority itself being so incredibly old first finest forever you know founded in 1851 all of the all the things we did were from 1851 we were wearing like old lady nightgowns and slips and reciting random religious passages and pricking our fingers and doing our secret handshake and you know we were being made to thought that we were drinking blood and we you know probably weren't but we were in pitch black rooms and it was just honestly pretty cool to have an experience like that with other women especially because i didn't have in real life sisters i was having like a bond with these women that you become so attached to because these are like the first few months of school you don't know anyone and you're a fish out of water and to have this quick of a bond with this large of a group it felt so secure and so i started creating an identity for myself within this group i lied about my political preferences i wore things i i would never have worn and i expressed myself and i think overcompensated with the partying because i just didn't i didn't vibe or jive with anything else that that was going on in that community I was in the bottom of the bottom tier sorority at a big SEC, so that's Southeastern Conference school, where Greek life is pretty much everything, and it extends into your adult life and professional life too in some cases. If you're not familiar, especially for those of you maybe outside of the United States, the SEC Southeastern Conference refers to a group of mostly state schools throughout the Southeast. Um, the big ones being Ole Miss, which is the University of Mississippi, University of Alabama, University of Tennessee, University of Kentucky, um, University of Florida, University of Georgia, Mississippi State University. You kind of get the picture. That's not all of them, but um, the Greek life is pretty big at pretty much all of those schools. And it's really common for Greek alumni to be really influential members of society. So politicians, um, the politicians in the Alabama state legislature are pretty much all Greek at University of Alabama. Uh, Peyton Manning was Greek at University of Tennessee, as well as his brothers at the University of Mississippi. Mostly for white families who've grown up in the South, Greek life is kind of something that you're almost trained into. Uh, so a lot of people's parents were Greek and they want their children to go into the same sorority or fraternity, um, or at least be in a good sorority or fraternity at um, one of these major schools. For someone like me, I was kind of shy in high school. I definitely had my share of friends, but we were all kind of into like kind of nerdier things. When I went through recruitment, I didn't, I knew like a small handful of girls in a couple of chapters that I wasn't friends with in high school and who knew a version of me in high school that I was trying to put behind myself when I went to college. So my senior year of high school, I started to become a lot more social, started to want to be involved in more things. Um, I wanted to make more friends and really put myself out there. So I decided to go Greek in college and I did the homework, but I wasn't, I hadn't done the years of preparation of, you know, 
being involved in church youth group, going to church summer camp, um, meeting girls through the community, or being in friend groups in high school with the girls who were in these chapters. So as a PNM, when you're going through recruitment, there's a reason that you're connecting with the girl that you feel like you're connecting to. It's been planned that way. Um, so as a PM, when I was rushing, I fell in love with a couple of chapters. Um, there was one chapter where there were a lot of girls who were um, definitely really academically inclined. They had one of the highest GPAs on campus. They had a lot of girls who were in choir and several girls who were in my major. Um, so I wanted to be in that chapter. And they paired me with girls who really fit the bill for who I wanted to be. So I fell in love with them. However, not knowing a lot of people going into Rush, um, I had the outfits down for a few days, but I also had the sleep deprivation and couldn't carry a conversation for some of the days. Um, so when I finished the first round, you know, killed it, got invited back to uh, the maximum amount of parties that I was invited back to. So I could go back. I started with 13. I was able to go to 10. For that round, I was so exhausted. I did not wear my the most appropriate dress. It was an appropriate dress. Looking back, I'm probably being too harsh on myself. This is this is how ridiculous it gets. I was not wearing a stylish boutique dress. I was wearing something that I kind of got from like Marshalls a while ago. Like it was cute enough, but it was not. It just wasn't what everybody else was wearing, and I can't put my finger on that. What you wear during rush is so important. If you're not going to wear what everybody else is wearing, it better be a look for you and it better still look professional in Southern sorority recruitment. Because if if they look at you and identify you as other or as not fitting in, it's going to be hard. I don't think that the dress is the reason I didn't get invited back. I think it's mainly that I didn't know enough girls. And so when they went through their ranking process and then I went through my ranking process, um, I maybe didn't make it high enough on their lists. So um, I ended up getting dropped from all but one chapter. The chapter that I got invited back to was the bottom tier sorority. They were known for kind of being the girls who took anybody. Like They were the Hufflepuff of campus, which I mean that in a good way, but I, I also mean it in a lovingly not as good way because um, in a way, beggars can't be choosers. I was in Delta Phi Epsilon at the University of Michigan. Just to describe my sorority, it was not good <laughs> in terms of like the broader look at Greek life. Um, it was definitely like of a lower tier. Actually, like a lot of people just assumed we were a Jewish sorority because a lot of the members were Jewish and a lot of the girls in the sorority had like what you might call like stereotypical, like their brown hair, brown eyes. And a lot of them participated in like Jewish events on campus, like Hillel and, and other things. Um, but actually we aren't official or weren't officially a Jewish sorority. And out of my like best friends, half of us were Jewish and half of us weren't. But I think in comparison to some of the other sororities, we were sort of labeled as a Jewish sorority objectively the girls in my sorority were not hot but I still think that there were some like really gorgeous people in my sorority but just some things don't work out for you during the rush process I think the friend group that I ended up with we all sort of seemed like girls who probably could have been in another sorority but we ended up together and I think ultimately we preferred where we ended up at 
at the end of everything because it brought us together and we felt like we had like realer relationships that weren't based on Greek life and weren't based on like what Greek life said about us. Rush was pretty stressful. I went to a huge school. So, and I came from, I went to Michigan, obviously it's a huge school. I came from like a really small school in Nashville where I knew everyone in my high school, everyone knew everyone, everyone knew everyone's business. Um, so going from that, like, lifestyle to Michigan was definitely like a stark difference. And Rush was huge. I think I always just figured I'd be in a sorority. I went to summer camp and like loved the, you know, like cheery, sing-songy, like cult-like vibe of having, you know, that kind of community. So I just like figured, you know, I would do it. I didn't know which house I wanted to be in before coming to school, going to school. I didn't even know much about the sororities in general. Like I, I just, again, I kind of went in like no clue. I didn't realize like the tiered system until I was in it. They give you a book to write notes after every house so that you like, don't forget how you felt and like what you liked and didn't like. And I like kept writing like no diversity, no diversity. And I think I had it in my head. Like I was, I was really already very involved in like social justice activities and like diversity initiatives and stuff. And like, I think I thought that like the sororities would be more diverse, but like they obviously weren't. I probably even asked some of the girls like about the diversity of the house and they were probably like, what the fuck is this girl doing? Like, I don't know. I I remember just sort of being like feeling weird about that piece. My self-esteem definitely took a major hit. I don't think I realized it until I was sort of like deeper into the sorority system. And I even remember like my friends and I still joke about this, that we were walk. It was probably one of our first mixers. Like we were walking to one of our first mixers and I pointed to one of the best frats. We like walked by it. And I had earlier that summer or that school year, like before rush started, I had gone to a party at that frat. I felt like totally welcome when I was like, not in a sorority. And, um, I was like, Oh, law, like we'll probably mix with them another, like another week. Like we're mixing. I, I literally thought every frat mixed with every sorority. I just didn't, I didn't know there was like a system behind it. Certain guys would like start to talk to me and hit on me like hot guys from like hot frats. And then they'd be like, what, what sorority are you in? They'd always ask that. What sorority are you in? And I'd like, I got to a point where I like felt embarrassed saying it. So I'd be like, guess. And like a lot of times they guess sororities that were <laughs> most definitely not mine were like top tier sororities. And I'd like eventually have to tell them I was in DeFi and it got to a point where it was like really offensive because they'd sort of just like walk away and like the conversation ended. And I think my friends and I used to talk about it. And at first, like there were some people who really got caught up in it. And then I kind of got to the point where I was like, you know what? Like I don't want to be with like hook up with this person or be around this person that like is judging me on the fact that I'm in a certain sorority. Like that's kind of gross and immature. One thing that's kind of interesting from the perspective of being in a sorority that's not like labeled as a good sorority is that during rush, we often got girls who were like thought they were better than us and didn't want to be bothered with our sorority who were outwardly rude, didn't show up, like would, you know, not talk or like 
do things that were really offensive because they didn't want to get asked back to the sorority. I think it kind of got to a point where like rush kind of sucked for us because most people didn't want to, we were basically picking from the bottom of the barrel. Like most people didn't want to be in our sorority. It Like rush was kind of just like a shitty process. And it was us trying to convince, like do our absolute best to convince people that like we did have cool people and we did do fun stuff and we weren't all weirdos. I was an alpha fee at Chapman University. I'm half black, half white, but I would say uh, people assume that I'm not just white. People can tell that I'm mixed with something. Because alpha fee had this stereotype, uh, or I guess, yeah, just type of women that was considered like the blonde Barbie girls, uh, it was definitely interesting being part of that when I am literally barely five feet. I am at at the time, uh, I I was really struggling with figuring out what my black identity meant to me and exactly how that fit not only into just understanding who I am, but also understanding how I interact just with the world and with other people as I was growing into being an adult. You know, I went to, I went to college at 18, having grown up in a primarily white community. And it was definitely interesting, uh, now looking back that even, even during rush, I was still drawn to a sorority, um, that specifically was made up of women that weren't diverse. And I think, you know, I think honestly, that is just what I grew up with. So it is that at the time entering college, I just felt comfortable with that. It wasn't something that at the time I was seeking out necessarily. As far as actually though, facing any overt racism. I can't recall like a certain story or an event or anything where I really felt it, but almost maybe more than uh, feeling a gap maybe racially to certain women in my sorority, I definitely felt that there was a very big difference in wealth. I think something that I was really looking forward to and really excited about with Alpha Phi uh, and being in a sorority was being able to have that sort of mentorship. And I don't really think I connected very much to the older women. I think um, I met like my best friend, like in the entire world who we would literally, instead of um, a fees, like alpha fees, we would call each other awkward fees. Cause we just always felt like we were on the outskirts of like what, who was cool, what was going on. We lived with guys, you know, like we like barely knew how to like give ourselves a blowout, let alone like know how to walk in heels for more than a mile. Like literally just not what this, the majority of a lot of these women were like, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Once again, I met these women and I wanted to be them. Like when it came down to, oh, figuring out who is going to be your little, I just, it was almost so clear that like the cool, hot, seniors or juniors wanted to have the cool, hot freshmen to kind of groom in a way. And I'm not trying to like poo-poo on anyone's actual relationship with a girl who also, you know, happens to be hot and they had a really good friendship and everything. But it just was very clear sort of how like the hierarchy in a way worked. And a lot of it came down to like, are you hot? 
And are you fun? Do you party? And also, like, do you have, like, the money and the means to be able to, like, go out and go on trips and all that sort of stuff, which was just not, like, even though I grew up in a wealthy environment, that's not necessarily what my my financial situation wasn't like that. I, you know, meanwhile, I literally, when I got a little... I don't know if she knows this, but when I got a little, I literally did the majority of my shopping at the dollar store. And I wish that was like a joke. I truly, I literally remember going to the dollar store and being like, okay, like what can I, what can I bedazzle? So it look this like, what can I bedazzle to look like I have the money to spoil this girl that I've known for maybe, I don't know, 60 days. You know, I'll, I guess I'll never know if I had joined a different house that wasn't considered a top house, how much that actually would have affected my social life um, at Chapman. So and because of that, I don't regret joining Alpha Phi and I don't regret joining in a sorority because I was in it for almost all four years and I had a fun time at Chapman. I, I really did. But it just it was interesting operating being in a house that was considered a, a top house and feeling awkward within that top house and not feeling like I necessarily belonged there or connected with the girls or even just looked, once again, just kind of looked like the other girls. I was in Alpha Phi at SUNY. I would describe Alpha Phi as the girls you marry. In fact, that's what we used to say. We would say about our rival sorority that those are the girls that you date and Alpha Phi are the girls that you marry. Despite it being a Christian sorority, um, most of our members were Jews from the tri-state area. I was hazed very much so. Hazing for us, basically, once you start, you more or less, you know, live with your pledge class 24 hours a day. Anyone who was late, you would have to do like wall sits for a certain number of minutes that you were late. So we would sit in their basement until someone would scream pledge and then you would come upstairs and you would be told um, to do something. So I, they found out that I was good at making beds, which I liked doing also. So I would usually go and make everyone's beds. So we would have to clean. We would be reorganizing people's closets, drawers, um, cleaning the kitchen, sweeping. I mean, doing all of that type of stuff, I guess, like physical labor. We were also expected to memorize facts about the sorority. So you needed to have your family tree memorized. You needed to know all past pledge moms and assistant pledge moms. You needed to know their pledge names. Um, you would be tested on those things. And so, for example, you could be cleaning uh, you know, someone's house and they would decide that they wanted to test you and they would put you into a cold shower. So you would go into the shower with your clothing on. This is Buffalo in the winter, by the way. Uh, someone in my pledge class got pneumonia while we were pledging, but they would put you into the cold shower and, and with the water beating down on you, you wouldn't be able to get out until you could, you know, recite through your family tree and things like that. We were also on call for them at all times on campus. Even we, we had to they would tell us not to look sketchy, not to congregate all together, you know, all s smelly and tired, all of us. But we were on their beck and call. So there was like one big library that all the cool kids would hang out at. And um, 
we would have to go get people snacks, go bring them, help them to do something with their work. Um, parking was a shit show at my university. And so very oftentimes you'd be called out of the library to go park, uh, you know, a, a senior's car or something like that. In the beginning, we would stay at our pledge mom's, in our pledge mom's basement for like hours. And then we'd be released to go back to the dorms, which were on North Campus. We would have to catch a bus. Um, that was in the beginning. But by the time that pledging was really underway, we slept there every single night. So we would just, I would get back in the morning and maybe be able to sleep for an hour before my 8 a.m. class. There was a lot of bonding that would go on in the basement. We relied on each other and they really drilled that into us. So, for example, um, we would be quizzed and stuff at parties. We would we would have to go to parties and stand up against the wall. We weren't allowed to engage in the parties, but we would be standing up against the wall. Um, and, you know, a sister could come over and ask you a question or something. You could get quizzed or she could just come over and decide to haze you. And whenever you were getting a punishment or whenever you saw someone getting a punishment, rather, you were expected to join in on that punishment. Um, they would ask us repeatedly, how many are you? And the answer was always supposed to be one, not 19. We were supposed to function as one unit and all support each other. So if I was getting my, a beer poured on my head, um, out at a party, which happened all the time. We were constantly doused with things. If I was having a beer poured on my head, the, the pledge standing next to me would tip her head into mine so that our heads would be touching. So it would be dripping down her face as well. We would also have lineups, which was probably, um, the worst part, I guess, really of the hazing process. And we would know that a lineup was coming because we would be told to, line up in the basement, get on your knees, put your blindfolds on. We were blindfolded during every lineup um, and to sing, you are my sunshine. And so you would have all the girls in the basement creepily singing, you are my sunshine, waiting for usually the seniors um, to come downstairs and do the lineup. We would get screamed at, shouted at, you know, told that they hate us, that we're never getting into the sorority. No one was hitting you or physically assaulting you, but they would pour things on you. Um, I had like fluff about, a, you know, a thing of fluff. Someone spooned it out and rubbed it all into my hair and then left the spoon. It's funny to me, left the spoon hanging. And then there's Hell Week. Basically, you're, you live in your pledge mom's house, um, the entire week when you're not in class. We weren't allowed to shower, so everyone was really disgusting. When you were in the basement during Hell Week, this evil song was playing uh, nonstop on repeat. And so there was no silence. You couldn't hear yourself think. They would pull us all one by one and make us believe that we were jumping into a thing of glass and we had to trust them. Um, Ultimately, you didn't jump into glass. They, they switch out the glass for, um, you know, something else for you to jump into. They presented you with an apple and an onion alone in the bathroom. And you're told you get to, you have to take a bite of one or the other. Whichever one you don't take, um, your pledge sister is going to have to bite. And so then, you know, anyone who doesn't eat the onion is an asshole and would be called out for it. We, they brought you one by one and said, you know, we know that there's a weakest link here. Not everyone's going to make it through. Who would you want to kick out? And then they 
smashed anyone who actually gave another person's name. Because again, the point was that we were all supposed to be one and do it for ourselves. Uh, I'm sorry, and do everything for each other, do everything together. We went into initiation at right out of the thick of... No, oh my God, we didn't even go into it out of the thick of pledging. Our official initiation was while we were pledging. So we were officially initiated into the national, you know, into our chapter before we were done illegally pledging. So all of us show up to this initiation, no makeup on because we're not allowed to wear makeup and we had to wear all white. But most of us were in like white sweat. I was wearing these jeans that had cutouts all through the legs that did not fit me because I was eating a box of frosted flakes and hot fries every night during pledging. So I was popping out of those pants. But we all looked absolutely ridiculous. And I have a photo of all of us like pretending to smile and pretending to be excited again so they could send pictures and try to look like everything that we were doing um, was legit. And yeah, I mean, our real initiation is like you, (laughs) you know, you get into the sorority and everyone's screaming and shouting and then you go out and get drunk that night. I was in Pi Phi or Pi Beta Phi at San Diego State University. I was always kind of like a late bloomer in high school. Like I didn't get boobs until junior year. And all of a sudden I was like kind of cool, but never really that cool. Um, And so I think being in a sorority, especially being in like a super hot popular sorority really helped me like play out my hot girl. My sister, my older sister was in the same sorority at a different school. And my grandma was in another one of the top hot sororities um, at her school, like way back in the day. And both of them had had really good experiences in sororities. And so I was really excited about being in one. And it was something I did really want to do going into college. There was a lot of like psychological manipulation that was going on looking back, especially after watching like cult documentaries and stuff, I really feel like the time that I spent in sororities was very cult-like. And, you know, there were all these things that we would have to do. Like we never really got hazed, but there was always the promise of like really intense hazing that would happen to us. So there was like one time in particular that the older girls had been spreading this rumor around that we were going to get hazed. And that like the older guys were going to come in and circle all the parts of our body that they didn't like with Sharpie. And so we were, um, anyways, one night the, our big sisters took us up to the rooms upstairs and they were like, are you wearing cute underwear? And we were all like, what? No. And they were like, Oh, it's fine. It's fine. Just put these clothes on and we're going to blindfold you. But like, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Anything that happens, you're fine. And we were all just like freaking out. Anyways, they take us downstairs and we're all freaking out standing in our bare feet on this cold tile floor in this giant room and none of us know what's happening and they make us take our blindfolds off and it was like a cookie party and they were like, we would never do that to you, like we're sisters and so you're like, oh yeah, we're sisters, (laughs) like I don't know, it was so terrifying honestly. I don't know if it was happening to other houses, but it wasn't happening to us. It was like, oh, you're going to have to sit on newspaper and watch lesbian porn and whoever gets wet first, like, has to leave or something. You know, there's all these rumors about things that would happen, but nothing, nothing ever happened. 
you know, there was, there was weird stuff like girls would get, you know, I remember there was one girl in my, in my sortie that almost, she got put on probation cause she was being too slutty and like she was hooking up with too many guys. And so they like wouldn't let her go out to parties because she was like being too slutty. And then there were other girls that they would have to like, they would make them change before we went out because they weren't like slutty enough kind of like we we were always trying to strike this really fine balance of like the hot girl that you would take home to mom who isn't like too slutty on the outside but it's like a real freak in the sheets kind of like that was sort of the vibe we were going for and so if you were too overtly slutty you would get they would like try to bring you back in and if you weren't slutty enough they were trying to like sexy up a little bit I loved it at that time and then slowly after a while I realized I was just like extremely depressed and empty and really deeply deeply unhappy because I kind of thought that like doing this was going to fulfill me but realistically it it wasn't at all and I think one of the big turning points came for me when I brought one of my best friends to a frat party and she was not in the Greek system and she got roofied unbeknownst to me i i did not partially i think because i was you know the the little sis of the head of that frat i left because i thought she was fine and i hadn't seen her and i was like oh she was with this guy and she's probably fine and they called me later and was like you need to come pick your friend up and she had like i don't know it's hard to talk about still honestly but basically they blamed her and they blamed me for what had happened to her and all, all the girls in my sorority, all the guys, like I got in trouble because I had brought her to the party and I'm like, uh, hello, like ugh. it was just really messed up. And the lack of empathy and support I felt really just like was a big no for me. What ended up happening was I took mushrooms for the first time, (laughs) which was a huge turning point in my life. And I realized that I had been like performing the role of this like hot girl. And I didn't even know who I was or what I liked to do or what I wanted to wear because I was so constantly worried about what other people would think of me and whether or not it would like fit this weird alter ego I'd created for myself. And after that, I think I was just like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta stop this. Like I gotta, I gotta leave the sorority. I went to a very small liberal arts college in upstate New York and I graduated in 2019. I was in a sorority called PBX, which was, it was a local sorority as were all our sororities. And it was considered like one of the good ones on campus. And the other good one was ATX with joining one of these two sororities. You got like tons of attention from boys Everyone wanted to mix with us, and I would say that was definitely a big draw. The only red flag I saw was we did this weird, like, candlelight ceremony and had to drink all these beers and, like, hear these weird stories about the sisters. Um, and then we went away for the summer. Then when he came back for sophomore year, that's when um, pledging, hazing, whatever you want to call it, um, started. It started off slow. We didn't know it was coming. They let us, you know, hang around for a couple weeks of school. And then all of a sudden, they were like, come to this basement, the start basement in the house now. We had to lie on the floor. We got, like, food thrown at us. The people were screaming. All these girls were in black. It was actually pretty scary. And I got back to my room that night at probably, like, 2 or 3. It was a Thursday. I had class the next day. And the rules started right away. Like, 
We were not to wear black. Black was for sisters. Um, we were going to be on call at, I think it was 3 p.m. to midnight every weeknight. And on weekends, it was like 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. on the weeknights. So that schedule started. It was pretty like crazy. Um, not tons of sleep. Um, I was one of the ones who had a car on campus. So I ended up putting like tons of miles on my car, which is just really weird. And I hated driving. And a couple weeks in, we got our items, which was our Lynn item. So we'd just been assigned our Lynn, which was exciting. Um, and then these items were to be worn every day. And the older girls would try to like steal them. So mine, for example, were these like size 11 black Crocs. And I had to like walk around in them. It was so embarrassing. Um, I have small feet too. So they just like kind of, I walk, had to walk like kind of funny in them. My roommate had a wheelie backpack. Um, one girl had a razor scooter that she had to ride everywhere. She couldn't walk. Then we started having lineups, which we go to that same house, the basement, and they would scream and scream at us. They'd swear at us. Um, they'd put like Crisco in our hair, make us like, lie down on the ground it was just like kind of weird and then often we would get left there and they'd be like make your own way home and it was a bit of a walk um or they'd be like you can leave after you've sorted these skittles into different colors and be like thousands of skittles my like buttons were like a push they woke us up really early one morning and they took us to this like pond and they made us swim in it it was just like so weird it was cold and like then we were out all day. We couldn't go home and shower. It was just kind of like mean. And then towards the end, it just got worse, worse, worse. Hours got worse. We had more restrictions. And the whole time during pledging, we were sober. We could not go out. The final initiation, they blindfolded us, drove us to this someone's ski house like three hours away and made us stay up all night, like hit pans at our heads, made us recite like the alphabet, blah, blah, blah. But the worst part was the sleep deprivation for sure. And it was so cold. It was an honor, it felt like, to be in that sorority. And these girls were really, really pretty, really put together, you know, smart. A lot of them had really handsome boyfriends, like cool guys. It opened up my mind to like what I wanted my life to be. And it was I was on the path there, which was exciting to me. A sophomore year, when we started the rush process for the now freshmen, that was, it was too much power. Like, we had PowerPoints of girls and we would critique them. And it's would say, oh no, not that girl. Like, she wore this ugly, like, her ugly outfit to this party. Or like, oh, that girl's like hooked up with this boy that I like. Like, don't let her in. It was just, it was too much power. And it was very much like, you're kind of playing God in this weird way. Like, picking who we're going to become friends. The drinking culture in my sorority was crazy. Like, it was a funny thing to black out. You made out with, like, this guy, and you're rolling around on the floor outside. Like, and you were in the... Like, we had cornfields everywhere. They were like, you were running through the cornfield, like... And you came back with scratches all over your legs. Like, it was so... Like, at the time, it was hilarious. But now it's like, oh, my God. Like, I can't believe I was drinking enough to, like wake up the next morning with my legs literally I had like fishnet stockings on but they're like scratches from like the briar patch in the cornfield at like outside of a bar the sorority kind of gave me the opportunity to act super badly if that makes sense overall like it definitely did trigger you know some 
high school eating issues just because of the attention from boys, the way he got talked about. Everyone knew who you were. Like, he wanted the older girls to, like, be proud. Like, it was just this super weird, like, all eyes on you, this built-in attention, this built-in social life, these built-in friends. It gave me, like, this weird built-in persona and didn't really allow me to, like, find my own way, I guess, in college. I guess the stereotype of my chapter would be that we are all like in-state, daddy's money. They call soccer moms. Like we, like I would not say we're the hot sorority. We're just not. And that's fine. I'd rather be, well, it'd be nice to be hot. But I think that we're pretty respected on campus. People also see us as like party girls. So I'm kind of like, well, I guess you can be a mom and party. My sophomore and junior year, I had a position on our like chapter council. And then my senior year, I was elected to be head of rush or the director of recruitment. So that was really interesting to see that side of like the other side of rush as a member in the chapter rush. I was thoroughly impressed that it wasn't as like, don't get me wrong. It's really brutal that like you have 10 minutes, five minutes to judge if a girl is like gonna fit in your chapter or not and if they're not good at talking you're probably not gonna score them well so yeah we score the girls and then you only score the girls that you talk to at least in our chapter i know there are others that you like everyone votes on one girl you have to be very harsh like if the girl doesn't impress you she can be so cute but if you don't see her hang out with your friends you cut her and you let her go but honestly it's for their sake too because you wouldn't want someone that you don't think is going to fit well within the chapter to come in and be in the chapter and not have any friends because that just does them a disservice. It's almost, it's almost like auditions for friends, which is terrible. So I was in charge of teaching two pledge classes, how to do in-person rush when one of the pledge classes has never done in-person rush and the other, the youngest pledge class had never even been in, like never even experienced in-person rush as a PNM because they were on, they were the pledge class that was on Zoom. So that was really the hardest part because I think our panelinic did a god awful job of kind of telling us what to do because it had been two years since I had done in person. So I'm doing everything based off memory. I had a few, you know, files in a Google Drive, but that's kind of all I had. And so that was really hard. And then our chapter has just grown so much since I was a freshman. Like I have 50 something people in my pledge class and they grew to now have a hundred people per pledge class, which is just, I think, ridiculous you can't have a hundred like i have a lot of friends but you cannot have a hundred friends that's insane the biggest problem i faced was panelinic like the people in charge they were out to get us so there's so many rules you we have like you can't have certain like you can only have approved decorations you can't have a speaker in during a round um to play music because we always do like this one part with music in our pref round but we got in trouble and fined like $600 because we had a speaker that was playing music and apparently that wasn't approved but it was in the document that we sent in so we got fined for that we got fined because one girl told a PNM that she wouldn't be happy in XYZ chapter but she would be happy here we got fined because a girl uh, a PNM was like there's like a period of time. So you have like two minutes until the party's over where you can, we have to have all of the PNMs out the door and a PNM was in there for too long. So we got like fined a hundred dollars for that. There's a lot of money that Panhellenic exec gets. And yes, it's all donated to uh, like philanthropy, which is great. Actually, I'm not even positive. It's given to philanthropy. If anything, I think they use it in their budget to like pay for their food. So I think that's kind of fucked 
if anything, it should be given to philanthropy. Because, I mean, can we get something that's good that comes out of this? When it comes to, like, blacklisting, that happens, yes. If there's, like, a girl that you do not want in your chap- in our chapter, someone would, like, go to, like, a certain, like, executive board and say, here's this girl. She was, like, really, like, she bullied my sister. Or she, like, had sex with my ex-boyfriend. Or she has a really bad reputation at home. So you would tell the council that. And most likely, they would be dropped just because someone in the chapter didn't want them there. But that happens with about, like, a handful of girls. In Rush, I had people tell me, I have the best friends in the world. Like, what you see here is, like, actually, like, real life. And, like, truthfully, in my chapter, I find that to be true for me. I know there are chapters that just put on a big show and act like they're all best friends. And then once Rush is over, just like that, they're actually not friends at all. They have, like, friend groups of five. There's nothing wrong with that. But they all act like they're all friends. Like, 25 of them are all best friends and they can't live without each other. But in reality, you know, they really only hang out with, like, three to four people. I think when I look back on my sorority days, there are going to be some things where it's more of like the status is something I like regret caring about, but I was young and, you know, went to a big school and wanted something to belong to. And I think I have that with my my sorority, but you know, it's really not that big of a deal. A few years ago, I was in Zeta Tau Alpha at the University of Miami. My sorority was known for being smart. We had the highest GPA of all the sororities, um, but obviously we like to party as well. University of Miami is a really big party school. Um, and Zeta was like at the top of the middle tier, I'd say. I always thought sororities were lame, but I had a hard time making friends my fall semester. I wasn't in one of the freshman dorms because they ran out of rooms. So that made it really difficult to meet people. And I was also in the Foot Fellows Honors Program as well as in the PRISM Advanced STEM Program. So I had like the same 30 people in all of my classes and they were like, they were all just really weird for the most part. I definitely don't think I was being my authentic self during Rush. I was very aware of my word choice and what I said. <laughs> I got dropped from the top three houses the first day. And I, kn- I know it's not because I'm ugly, but I, I just couldn't stop thinking about everything I said. And I just came off as like really weird. And so the rest of the Rush, I, you know, turned it down and was way more subdued. And like, I, yeah, I was not, I was not me during that. I got into like the lowest house I was okay with, I guess. I was embarrassed that none of the higher tier sororities wanted me, but Zeta was still a good house. So after I, I got that, I was, I was excited. Um, I left after my freshman year though. And the next year, the Zeta girl I knew got kicked out for drawing a swastika on a passed out pledge. So that was really fucked up. But the top sorority was DG, and they definitely did some hazing. The year after I left, their chapter got suspended for two years. The official record is that they were in violation of the university's alcohol and hazing policies. Um, and they quoted hazing, harassment, alcohol distribution, forced alcohol consumption, and delegated travel with unknown male students to locations. Like, they would have guys fake kidnap new pledges. Um, there was also a huge rumor that it was because they made girls do blow or blow, which for anyone who doesn't know, that means they would give the pledges a choice between blowing a guy or doing coke. Um, and that's like, that's not confirmed, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was true because you Miami is filled with a lot of rich kids and a lot of them do coke, like especially in the fraternities and sororities. I remember as part of the pledge process, we had to do this like bonding retreat. Um, 
And I don't remember everything we had to do, but the thing that I remember is sitting in a circle with all the pledges in a big room. Like we all had to go around and share a deep, dark secret or something that like only our sisters should know is how they framed it. I'm pretty sure. Um, cause these are your sisters and they should know everything about you. And I remember thinking that I didn't want them to have any blackmail on me. Um, so I, I kept it really vague. I was like, yeah, I struggled in high school and I'm proud of how far I've come. But like other girls really just, you know, they were talking about their eating disorders and their depression and, you know, self-harm or like struggling with their sexuality. Like you name it, someone said it, um, like I was really surprised by how willing these girls were to share the deepest, darkest parts of them. And I was, I was not willing to do that. Um, the social events were, were like wild, honestly. Um, I can't, I look back and I can't believe I was doing some of the shit that I was doing. The date parties were always at these really nice bars in Miami. They would like in like downtown, like they would rent out the whole bar, um, the frat formals were like these multi-day things in Fort Lauderdale. Usually the tailgates were fucking insane. This was before I was in a sorority, but still like the frats had pregames. So you would go get drunk at 9am and then they would take you on buses to the stadium. The frats all had their own setups out there with tents and beers and giant speakers in the back of a pickup truck. Um, there would always be just ambulances waiting there and like multiple kids passed out on the ground, hooked up to an IV by the ambulance, like, and like people would just go on partying around them. There would be the fraternity houses. And then there would be these like mansions that like six guys in a fraternity would rent. Um, and they were these, like, it was the weirdest thing. They would just be living in like giant dirty ass mansions with no furniture and just have these huge parties there. I get really embarrassed when I think back to who I was when I was in a sorority. Um, I ended up leaving after my freshman year because I was sexually assaulted um, by a guy in our brother fraternity that spring. And I totally spiraled. Um, I was doing like way too much Adderall and re- like having an eating disorder relapse after I was assaulted. And I obviously I can't blame that on the sorority, but it certainly didn't help being surrounded by girls who were also partying at the time. And my priorities were just like way off. And my big actually never unfollowed the guy who raped me on Instagram. Um, there's only one girl that I'm still friends with from my sorority and she was my sweet mate. So we were friends before that. Um, my big and my twin forgot I existed when I didn't come back to school none of it was real and it all feels like an insane fever dream and I'm so glad that I left when I did because I would not be the same person today if I had stayed in a sorority. So I am here to talk about a slightly different side of sorority life which actually controls active collegiate sorority life in general, at least in the case of the chapter that I was in. And that is being a, quote, consultant, a.k.a. a professional sorority girl. I'm pretty sure that every nationals has this, but they literally hire girls straight out of college to be trained to work for them professionally and travel the country and be involved in the day-to-day activities of those chapters. The 
true purpose of this role was enforcing what I'll continue to call the strategy of the sorority um, for recruitment purposes, um, disciplinarian purposes, everything. The main takeaway here is twofold. <laughs> Number one being that the chapter really has a lot less power than you're led to believe that it has, which means that your own sisters, your own role within the sorority is almost entirely meaningless. And number two, the burning question that everybody has is, is recruitment entirely based on looks? Um, yes, it is. Um, and our purpose, which I'll go into further, was to ensure that that strategy was being implemented in a very backdoor way. I started out in my sorority experience um, with a couple of leadership positions and ultimately ended as the president of a top tier sorority. I overall had a very positive collegiate experience. And unfortunately, it's a shame that my experience as a professional sorority girl um, tainted it so much because I do see that there can be positives of the sorority. But now that I know the back end of things, I can't say that I see a higher purpose. I had been involved in recruitment in the years past and was kind of aware of some of the processes that we had. I was aware that there was numerical influence over who got in, meaning, you know, the classic scoring girls from one to 10. But I thought that that had more to do with their involvement in the chapter, their leadership in the chapter, and not directly on um, their looks, which as I found out, um, our chapter was actually doing incorrectly. So after I got hired for this position, I reported to the national headquarters with about 23 to 25 other women where we slept as grown college graduates in a basement bunk room in a communal group setting for three weeks. So when you hear those horror stories of sororities indoctrinating you like cults, I mean, what's one of the first things that they do is they kind of group you together, strip away privacy, individuality. And to be honest, I, I did have some fun during that time, but um, it was very clear that we were all seen as a group. While it was kind of a professional setting, it also was not. We were living, breathing, and drinking the sorority Kool-Aid. And there is where we learned the strategy. That strategy is exactly what you think it was. We were trained to take the university rosters from every university of all of the potential new members or PNMs that had signed up to go through recruitment and individually, one by one, sometimes there were 500 of them, sometimes there were 5,000 of them, individually look them up on the internet, on Facebook, on Instagram, and give them a score, uh, one through 10, 10 being the highest, entirely based off of looks. At a Southern California school, uh, the 10 is going to be the hot blonde, Maybe she went to a beachside high school and we can tell that she's friends with people that may look to have a lot of money. Maybe she goes on really nice vacations. That would be a 10. In the South, that 10 is going to look a little bit different. Not surprisingly, she's probably going to be blonde. She's probably going to be, you know, on dance team at a local high school. Um, maybe she was homecoming queen. But those scores would also change 
who got lower scores. So I think that racism is something that we are talking a lot more about uh, in the sorority world. And unfortunately, especially in the South, I can't say that I ever really confronted it more than in the South. People of color definitely scored lower, even if they were beautiful. They would be strategically cut at strategic rounds so that it wasn't clear what was happening. Um, and part of the reason that they would do this is because uh, at one university in particular, I'll call it out as being Alabama because um, they're the only one that has this specific organization that I'm talking about. There was an underground organization called The Machine. And the sorority that I was involved with and working at wasn't doing that well in sorority rankings. And so it was in, quote, as I was told, in our best interest to strategically cut people of color because the machine would not like a sorority taking more than certain number of people of color. And that was the first school that I went to after this training and really, really opened my eyes to just how deep systemic racism really was still at play within the inner workings of a sorority. It's sad to look back on because I was sold that this was something that was totally fine. The The reason that I bought into it and the reason that I was able to get um, every single chapter that I visited to be on board with it was because, and I'm no less culpable for this, I was an adult that should have known better. Um, but what I was told was that, well, people self-select anyway. Um, society isn't that different from high school. You know, you see the pretty girls with the pretty girls and uh, the geeks with the geeks and the, the band kids with the band kids. So what we're doing here is really not unlike what is going to happen anyway. And if we've identified this target girl that we want, right, what does the perfect member look like? If we have identified that and 50% of the chapter meets that image, the 50% that's not is also recruiting. And if they're recruiting girls that they connect with and girls that they like, then you're perpetuating the cycle of 50% of the chapter not meeting the target. So what we were sold is that we were actually narrowing the divide of the girls that would ultimately feel like outsiders, have a negative experience and drop. Going back to the gaslighting of the members, there's girls that are put into bump groups based on their attractiveness in the chapter that are then matched with the best looking potential new members or PNMs to come through the door. So we're matching best looking with best looking, medium looking with medium looking, and as um, higher ups would not so uh, discreetly say, you know, the uggos with the uggos. And then there were the girls that were deemed, and unfortunately, these were really the girls that had the most character and were actually the coolest people in the house, um, but were not, quote, conventionally attractive enough to be on the floor that would be relegated to the back room. And that's where those girls would be sitting in the back, going through scorecards and just kind of helping out with the administrative side of recruitment. And the lengths that we would go to to keep the chapter from knowing what we were doing would go so far as 
to take those scorecards in from the chapter that they had just spent two or three minutes filling out uh, in, in chaos, absolute chaos. And we would have those girls input the scores from the chapter and a few notes into a glorified Excel spreadsheet. We never, ever used those scorecards. In fact, our higher ups and, and even us would, would laugh about the scorecards. The only reason that we would have those girls in the back room enter the scores into the computer was so that we had a false backup saying that we were using those scorecards because inevitably what was going to happen and what did happen is a girl would get tens from her entire bump group and then not see her the next day and hear through the grapevine that that girl who got cut really wanted to come back to the sorority, but for some reason didn't receive an invitation. And so the reason we would have those girls inputting those pointless scores into that pointless spreadsheet was so that we would have a backup saying, well, no, one of, one of the girls in your own chapter inputted those scores and that's how the decisions were made. And maybe she didn't put that sorority back and she's just telling you that she did. Like the, the gaslighting of these members was extreme. It was extremely stressful. I would go days without sleeping. We were only allowed six days off per semester which meant that even Saturdays and Sundays, we were expected to be working. We would receive a paycheck of about $320 every two weeks. So we made about $640 a month. And the way that they justified that was that our room and board was totally taken care of. The way that they defined room and board was murky. At Indiana University, I was there for two weeks. And for two weeks, I slept on couch cushions that I had pulled from a couch and laid on the floor of a storage room with a throw blanket. And that's what I slept on for two weeks. There was two instances where I actually paid out of pocket for a hotel room because my sleeping conditions were so uncomfortable or they were in common areas where girls were coming in at 4 a.m. and studying. Knowing that I was part of and ultimately supported a system that actively discriminated based on looks is very, very, very upsetting, and it needs to stop. It's it's very sad to think that that entire stressful experience for the collegiates going through the rush process on both sides wasn't real, ultimately. The saddest part about it was seeing the girls that knew that they weren't as pretty as the other ones or um, as blonde or as tall um, getting put into those bump groups, knowing why they were there and being so frustrated and being gaslit about why they were there. I think that a lot of the anxiety that people experience in sororities starts at the top. It starts with this strategy of assigning numbers to very real people. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, and people who identify as neither, my name is Allie Weiss, and this has been Tales of Taboo. If you listened to this episode and had flashbacks of your own scarring Greek life experiences, I'm not paying your therapy bills, but you can totally talk to me about it. Email me at AllieWeissWorld at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at AllieWeissWorld. Email is preferable because I'm hashtag analog. The same goes for general love letters, hate notes, unwarranted complaints about my white privilege and oversized eyebrows, etc. And please, please, 
share this episode with somebody you think might enjoy it. And don't forget to take 15 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on iTunes. Seriously, guys, 15 seconds, less than the amount of time it takes to brush your teeth or get a fucking coffee. This way, I don't have to inundate you with teeth whitening and CBD ads. But in either case, I love you all. I'm so grateful for your listenership, and I cannot wait to see and hear from you again next week. Until then, be good.